Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin. If you've been enjoying Unchained, pop into iTunes to give us a top rating or review. That helps other listeners find the show. Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Considering using digital securities as a way to grow in 2019? Tokensoft's trusted platform provides the security and compliance tools to leverage blockchain technology and enter new markets with confidence. Visit us at tokensoft.io or on Twitter at Tokensoft Inc. Do you have an idea for a blockchain app but are worried about the time and cost it will take to develop? The folks at Azure have you covered. The new Azure Blockchain Dev Kit is a free download that gives you the tools needed to get your first app running in less than 30 minutes. Learn more at aka.ms slash unchained or by following them on Twitter at MSFT Blockchain. My guest today is Rune Christensen of MakerDAO, who is back for part two of our dive into MakerDAO. Where we left off last week, and for listeners who did not listen to that episode, I highly recommend that you check that out. Plus, also, Rune was on the podcast uh, almost a year ago to discuss stablecoins generally. So if you don't understand stablecoins, that gives a really good overview of all the different types of stablecoins. And now in this past episode, last week's episode, and this episode, we are diving deep into MakerDAO and how it works. And where we all left off last week was we had started to talk a little bit about multi-collateral die. That episode kind of talked a lot about the single collateral die system. So Rune, can you describe for me multi-collateral die? And let's do the same as we did last week, where you describe the process by which somebody creates a multi-collateral die for themselves and then redeems it without their collateral falling below the 150% threshold. Yes, absolutely. So, well, so I mean, it's actually the same process, right? It's just now you have a choice of using many different tokens. So it would be, you know, it could be something like you take a tokenized stock, right? So like uh, Apple shares that have been turned into tokens that are available as UC20 tokens on Ethereum in some sort of regulated environment, like some sort of regulated front end. And um, you then just deposit them into the system just like you do with Ethereum in single collateral die, And then the system will have some specific risk parameters for that, uh, for that particular type of collateral using that depends on how risky it is, right? So something like stocks is going to have a sort of a medium level of, of, uh, of, of risk parameters to it, right? So it's not going to be as considered as risky and as expensive, like as expensive to borrow with as something like Ethereum or cryptocurrencies. 
but also it's not as as stable considered as stable as something like tokenized bonds or or maybe other stable coins and yeah so you put in your your asset you take out a loan and you can then choose to wait for as long as you want before you pay back that loan um but of course when you pay back the loan you also have to pay uh, what's in in maker called the stability fee which is basically the interest rate of the system, right? The cost to borrow the die from the system over time. And once you pay it back, the system automatically unlocks your collateral and allows you to retrieve your your tokenized stock out again. And the, the reason why this is interesting to do is because it allows you to keep your exposure to the tokenized stock, but still unlock, like, you know, still access liquidity in it, right? And actually spend, sort of spend the money that's in the stock without actually selling the stock. So if the price of the stock goes up, you actually still get get the benefit of that, and then later you can choose to pay back your debt and then just get your your full access and sort of like take it back into your own wallet. Yeah, yeah, I find the system so interesting because it's basically a way to just give yourself a loan out of assets that you already have. One thing that I want to ask though is so with multi collateral die, let's say eventually there comes a point where maybe there's twenty different assets that are allowed as collateral for the MakerDAO system. It, so let's say that I own only two of those assets. Can I create a die for myself with only two? Or could I even, what if I only have one? Could I, could I make a single collateral die for myself at that point? Or how much diversification will you require from people who are making multi-collateral die for themselves? Yeah. So, I mean, so let, let me be clear here because the, so, um, it it's like multi-collateral die doesn't mean that you have to use multiple collateral like as a user when you um when you take a loan for the system so it really works exactly the same way it's just you have you have different choices in what kind of collateral you want to use so if you only have let's say a tokenized stock or you only have let's say augur rep tokens or digix tokens or or bitcoins or whatever even if there's a thousand different collateral types, you can still get direct access to the loan, just like it, the way the system currently works. And the reason is because the risk is pooled across all users? Yeah, exactly. And like I said, uh, the only thing that's different is the actual risk parameters, right? So if you use, let's say, uh, Bitcoin as collateral, like if you use something like WBTC, you know, like a tokenized Bitcoin on Ethereum, uh, that's going to probably have you know a higher stability fee and require a higher level of collateralization than if you use something like you know a tokenized um, government bond or something right like some sort of asset that is very stable and very unlikely to crash. Okay, so basically you charge essentially the users for the risk that they're taking based on the asset that they put up for collateral. Yeah, and this actually ties back into. The dynamic we were talking about last time, which is that um, when things go well, MKR holders get paid, right? And, and and MKR holders are, in addition to the die holders and like the addition to die in the system, that's a stable coin, right? You have the MKR holders, which um, run the governance of the system and who actually decides, like makes the decisions on something like how much is the stability fee for tokenized bonds and what is the liquidation ratio and, and so on. And they, they try to set these parameters so they make as much money as possible, but also make the system very attractive for users, right? Um, and as long as everything goes well, they keep getting in 
um, you know, they keep getting money from the system, right? They, the stability fee goes to actually buy and burn the MKR supply. So the, the supply of MKR falls over time. But, and this is how the risk is pooled, right? If one of those particular or many, like if there's 20 different collateral types and one of them fails or something like that, right? Then it doesn't matter which collateral type it is because the whole system is sort of tied together, right? So as long as any collateral fails anywhere, the MKR token and sort of the whole governance community as a whole is is always responsible for recapitalizing that through inflation of the MKR token. So MKR is really what ties it all together, right? Because it means that even though some DAI is created out of, of tokenized stocks and some DAI is created out of Bitcoins, ultimately the thing that sort of fundamentally underwrites the stability um, and, and sort of like guarantees liquidity and, and fungibility in the system is the fact that all the DAI is also protected by MKR inflation, right? In case that the, 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 the first line of, of defense, the collateral fails, there is that second line of defense, which is the MKR inflation that can then step in and make sure that even if your die was created out of some terrible collateral that soon after failed, that doesn't matter because that die still has the same protection as all other die uh, from the MKR function. So you keep talking about the MKR holders. Who gets to be an MKR holder? Uh, yeah, so uh, MKR is actually the first ERC-20 token, as far as I'm aware. Um, and it's one of the only uh, ERC-20 tokens that wasn't distributed in ICO, but rather was sold in this very, um, you know, like deliberate fashion to community members early on. So so MKR was kind of like, was distributed uh, by the foundation very slowly over time and in a very, uh, you know, in li- initially in this very kind of like, de- you know, um, deliberately obscure manner where only those who really knew what they were doing and, and, and really were seeking out a stablecoin project and then came upon Maker and found out about it were able to to um, to buy into this asset, um, and then and, over and time how, it started. How did you find those people and verify their identity and and give it to them if it wasn't through a traditional ICO? Uh, it, I mean, it was actually just people coming into a chat room and uh, and basically buying MCare. So it was. I mean, and initially it really was like just individuals in the community that that sort of joined and started contributing and then actually were able to like get like able to buy mkr and at at the very beginning of course at the at very low prices because we didn't actually really you know in the early days when we started distributing the mkr token you know we didn't really have much of a burn rate and everyone was kind of volunteers and in fact actually um the initial mkr distribution was primarily as reward for those who were volunteering, right? Because it was a very low value asset, but people sort of were willing to to uh, put in the work because they could see the long term potential. And then after a while, like the the people who had been rewarded with with MKR, and as well as those had been been doing those those uh, direct purchases from the foundation, then started trading them on secondary markets, such as actually Oasis Dex, which is our own decentralized exchange that the foundation created, and yeah. Then the the next phase was that we, when we started selling to institutions. So that was kind of when the price of MKR, like when yeah, when the price of MKR actually started increasing and sort of crypto started going mainstream, we stopped doing any sort of of sales to regular individuals, but rather started selling to institutions who were then able to do these larger purchases and sort of where everything was properly you know 
compliant and and done sort of in a in a proper professional fashion. And people and continue so for to be instance, able to that would buy. be like Andreessen Horowitz. Who were some of the other yeah. big names? Yeah. So I mean, Andreessen Horowitz is probably the most the, the best example. But actually, there is a, a it's a very large amount of of institutions at this point as well. There's also Polychain that's very prominent. They were the actually the very first institution. And what's kind of interesting is that they actually went and proposed, like the deal they made was kind of like they negotiated with the entire community and they actually made like a pro- public proposal to the community and had the community like ratify or kind of like agree to that proposal kind of like a, a, as a part of the decentralized governance process. Yeah. And it's kind um, of funny because isn't that on Reddit? They proposed it on Reddit. <laughs> yeah. We, uh, we also had a forum and, and yeah, like there is... We we had some very like we had a lot of very radical experiments in when it came to like direct community participation and kind of like direct uh, democracy I guess you can say and like direct control of the project, but in the end that was actually only possible during the very early stage when the community was was basically tiny. There there came a point where you know um, the community started sort of like started really growing and then it just became like it was just no longer possible to have that kind of total democratization democratization of everything right and and um the foundation started becoming more uh structured and and then i just kept doing the same kind of deals as as the very first one with polychain and when you say when you when you say that it was because like once once it got bigger you couldn't get enough votes like you know because random people that weren't kind of paying attention to everything were you know they had these tokens but they weren't participating in votes and stuff like that is that why well, so actually, our our main approach to governance is actually, uh, I mean, so we do use votes, and I do talk about voting in terms of controlling maker. But when we think about governance in terms of how we make, like how the community makes decisions at the social layer, you know, as as like a, as 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 the group of of people, basically, um, rather than than uh, doing it based on voting, we do it based on consensus decision making. So it's not really about who approves, it's about who opposes, you know, and, and then something can be done if there's no one in opposition or there's no like significant opposition. And the problem is basically the, like that, that works really well when you are super aligned and have like a very defined objective, um, which is why, you know, for instance, it works uh, in science, right? Like, and you can, you can have scientific consensus on, on very complicated topics because, you ultimately have, you know, everyone follows the scientific method, right? Um, but you can't do, like, you can't, you know, like, get consensus at scale on some topics such as, like, how does a startup navigate its competition or something. So, it, like, we actually thought it was going to be possible initially, but at some point we started realizing that because we were letting literally anyone come in and join the decision-making process and, in fact, sort of giving everyone a veto, uh, and amazingly, it worked for two years. but eventually it you know like it just it just became too big right and and it was clear that uh like we didn't actually have any instances of someone sort of trolling us and and just like abusing the process but it became clear to everyone like the entire community basically it reached a consensus on the fact that it was time to uh, to sort of structure and and um in order to start focusing on actually delivering the project the, the foundation had to become more structured and sort of more centralized basically right and and based on a more uh, traditional process of, of just having a core team that makes a decision, right? And, and so now is and that the foundation? There, yeah. 
yeah, so that is that is a mega foundation. And from there, we were then able to actually launch the actual, you know, maker platform and the DAI stablecoin system on the blockchain. And then when that happened, that's when the real governance started, right? Because that's when the voting actually became a thing on the blockchain. And you could use the tokens to vote on on stuff like the risk parameters. So essentially now the maker holders, that's what their main function is, but it's not to choose who else becomes these kind of institutional votes that like the big maker holders that will still be decided by the foundation. And then the general population of maker holders are deciding which assets can be used as collateral and kind of how much risk each asset presents. Is that it? Yeah. So, it, and it's really like, and, and what's important about how the risk assessment is done is um, it, it's, it's very important. It doesn't become a popularity contest, right? And it's very important. It doesn't become kind of like arbitrary rule by MKR holders or even MKR whales. Um, because in that case, you can very easily imagine that there'd be a lot of bias introduced, right? And it would end up becoming kind of like a contest of like what, what other tokens do the MKR holders hold most of? Because then let's give that one some really good risk parameters so we can pump our bags basically, right? And yeah. that's obviously <laughs> that very bad for stability, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, th- and that's really the fundamental, like the, the fundamental issue we've grappled with when, when trying to design the governance process. And what we came up with is, yeah, it's basically what I was talking about earlier, right? It's consensus decision-making process. And it's, it's trying to emulate the scientific process, right? So, so it's kind of like a two, two layer process where the first, the first layer is kind of like, is, is this, uh, scientific debate, basically, and like a, a place where people who are actually subject matter experts uh, openly debate based on, you know, on data and on models and on, on theory that all has been, you know, that all is kind of like known as, like known by the community and, uh, and especially known by the experts to be, you know, the, the scientifically approved way you do risk management, right? And, and here the key really is to, to look at existing traditional mechanisms, right? So, so we're not really trying to reinvent the real, rather we're trying to, you know, build a, a system where we can apply all that existing knowledge to, so, so we can apply it in a more efficient way, but we don't, you know, claim to, uh, you know, have reinvented math or something or reinvented, you know, risk, various uh, risk models that exist. Rather, we want to actually apply those very rigorously and in a very transparent manner. So, so we have these various like these various uh, risk experts who are basically a part of the community and ultimately like the very best of them and the very most dedicated of them, they actually end up getting chosen by MKR governance. Like they get essentially elected into what we call risk teams and actually receive salary directly from the maker system. So they actually will receive a part of the stability fee income stream and they will then sort of present the the data and the models and and preside over this scientific debate that ultimately should result in scientific consensus on the things that are clear enough that you can actually reach a consensus on them and the job of the mkr holders from a crypto economic point of view is to then act as a, essentially kind of like a very slow oracle on this process uh, and right now it's it's envisioned to be every quarter so basically every quarter there will be Sort of this, that there'll be the end of a, a cycle of the of the risk assessment uh, debate, basically, and the things that we're able to, the, the things that the experts and the and the the risk community was able to reach scientific consensus on, 
is then sort of proposed for MKR holders to vote into the like like you know to to vote into the core of the system and actually change the parameters in the system. And the MKR holders then have to ensure that the process was actually followed, right? And it's not some sort of you know some sort of attack or some sort of uh, like there's some sort of bias in there or something. And there's actually like there's a, there's like multiple things in play here because there's even the 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 possibility that if you know the um, the proposal is malicious, but then a big MKR whale still tries to push it through because he just has more votes than the others, despite this this proposal being actually not the outcome of the of the scientific process. Um, then there's then other MKR holders can actually trigger you know an emergency shutdown by considering that uh, a governance attack, and then redeploy the system without the malicious voter in there. So there's really a lot of complexity to like wow. what like the MKR holders have this kind of like very mechanical or kind of like very security focused role, I guess you can say. Oh, that's very interesting. It's essentially like hard forking that whale out of the system. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then this means, does, does this mean that for the various assets that are added that they will all have different minimum thresholds and points at which they'll be liquidated because of the risk profiles yeah. and then they'll all have different stability fees and etc and also liquidation penalties yeah they should all i mean in theory they will all be completely unique based entirely around like the exact data for that particular asset and the models that apply to it and then mkr holders their job is to basically like those of them that that do have the, the ability to participate in the debate will of course participate in the scientific debate directly but those that don't then just have to sort of be observers that the you know that this is indeed like this is indeed the, the result of a scientific debate right and it's not some it's not some guy just trying to push something through because uh he has a lot of mkr and he this is his favorite to token or something right that's really the the role that like the the average mkr holder plays so even if you have no idea about risk assessment, there's still a you know there's still a role to play as an MKR holder because you can still be sort of the you know the final line of security right like the the, the final sanity check to ensure that the system isn't getting abused. And what was the name of these MKR holders that have these special the special role? What was their name again? Uh, you talk like I mean so there is there is this type of of actor in the ecosystem called a risk team. So these are actual risk professionals that are sort of form these teams and are then elected by MKR holders to actually receive like salary or like receive a compensation out of the system to then work full time on on building the risk models and and gathering the data and sort of um presiding over the the overall scientific debate. Right, and you guys hired one recently or not that recently, but I guess last year who worked in traditional finance in a role like this, correct? Yeah, so, and actually, um, and uh, you're probably referring to Stephen Becker, who was hired as our head of risk, but today yeah. has actually, uh, today is actually the president of the foundation. Um, and that's correct. So he is, so, so today he is the president and he's very deeply involved in a lot of the operations of the foundation, but he is also still running what we call the, the temporary foundation risk team. So, so right, because today is still the very early days, um, you know we are like we're making sure that the the bare minimum is there, which means the one risk team that actually have risk professionals that can 
you know, that can actually produce these these model and actually produce something that is very sound and 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 you know, again, based based on these made based on these objective uh, scientific idea like models, right, from the traditional space for MKR yeah. holders. To Although I'm, I'm not sure exactly how well those work. Um, I guess we'll we'll find out. Um, but one thing I wanted to ask was. So earlier we walked through what happens if someone creates multi-collateral die and then just redeems it without their collateral falling below this threshold. But let's walk through what happens if their collateral does fall below their minimum threshold. Then what happens? So what happens is this, like, you know, the, the price oracles see that the price has now crashed by whatever some, some amount. They say twenty percent, so they send in the the price of this asset is now twenty percent lower, and that change in price then gets your you know if that's enough to get your position below let's say one hundred and fifty percent if that's a cutoff point, then the moment that the data is pushed into the system that changes the the you know that changes the calculation in the system to below one hundred and fifty percent, then the keepers you know the external agents that sort of monitor the system and and act to to exploit profit opportunities they see in the system they will immediately trigger an auction so a liquidation auction and once and then they'll trigger it and they will place a you know they'll place a bid for the collateral and basically the auction just says hey i want to sell this collateral how much do you want to pay for it and uh, people can choose to bid zero if they want to but of course that's not really a good strategy right it's better to to try to bid something where you can get you 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 get a cheap rate that's below the market rate, but uh, but still pretty close. So no one else is going to be able to bid a better than you. Right. But then, so what happens is I think they try to recoup the amount in die that was in that CDP. But then once they do that, then they try to recoup as much of the value of the collateral as possible for the owner, right? Yeah, that's correct. Like there's yeah, two so, different options. Course- yeah. Can you describe that part? Yeah, so I mean, so this is actually really complicated, right? But yeah, so but the the first and main goal of the system is to uh, recapitalize the die, right? To ensure that there is enough collateral in the system to back the outstanding value of die. So first order of business is to basically say this CDP, like this loan, is now no longer safe. So the die that has been backed by this loan needs to be removed from the supply. So we need to contract the supply to be in line with the fact that. The collateral base has now contracted. So the yeah. So first, the first thing that the system tries to do is basically saying, well, actually, it just tries. Like first, it actually assumes it's not able to recoup all of the die from the market. So first, it just says, here's all the collateral. How much die are you willing to pay for that? And if someone then bids, like, and and in, in this uh, scenario, let's say that the debt is one hundred, and uh, the liquidation point is $150, or like 150%, sorry. So there's $150 worth of collateral and there's $100 worth of debt, right? The system will then take the $150 worth of collateral and be like, how much, like, does someone want to buy this? Basically, anyone can submit a bid. And Akiba will then most likely submit, you know, maybe someone's going to be cheeky first and be like, I'll pay $5 for the $150 worth of collateral. But because the the value of the collateral, if if it actually is one hundred and fifty dollars, or maybe slightly lower than that, because it's in the process of a crashing, of a, it's in the middle of a crash or something, right? Then uh, soon enough, someone will actually say, "I'm willing to pay," you know, "I'm willing." Like, I mean, someone will say, "I'm willing to pay a hundred dollars 
for the $150 worth of collateral. And once the system knows that, so once someone is willing to pay $100, then the system has had its, you know, has achieved its primary objective, which is to ensure that it can take in 100 DAI to contract supply, right? So then the next step is to be like, okay, so actually I can, I know I can sell this collateral for 100 DAI. Um, then actually my goal is to just sell as little collateral as possible for 100 DAI so I can see if there's something left or I can give back to the owner. So the next, like, so, so the next phase of the auction, if it indeed gets this far, because it doesn't always get this far, because sometimes the value of collateral has just crashed below 100 DAI already, you know, while the auction is in process. But if that doesn't happen, then the next phase of the auction is the system then says, uh, how, like, you know, who's going to, like, people basically who, you know, I need 100 DAI. Uh, how much collateral do you want from me to give me 100 DAI? So then people will, so then one guy would bid maybe, I'll give you 100 DAI if you give me $140 worth of collateral. And then someone else would be like, well, you know, just give me $120 worth of collateral, right? I'll give you 100 DAI for that because it's still a great deal, right? And if effectively, like eventually this should equilibrate towards just the actual, you know, like the, the, the value of the debt, right? So someone is going to basically, basically uh, you know, bid 100, 100 die and want about $100 worth of collateral, like maybe $102 worth of collateral or something, right? So there will actually be a, a, still a decent surplus, like $48 if, if uh, the CDP holder is really lucky, that then is left over. Uh, in the system and is then given back to the CDP holder. Okay, so now I think we've walked through most of the nuts and bolts of MakerDAO. We are going to discuss how uh, all the all the different partnerships that MakerDAO has. We're going to discuss re regulatory issues. But first, a quick word from our fabulous sponsors. Getting your blockchain app off the whiteboard and into production can be a big undertaking. From connecting user interfaces to integrating disparate systems and data, blockchain app development can be time-intensive and costly. Well, the folks at Azure have you covered. With a few simple clicks, the Azure Blockchain Workbench can create a blockchain network for you, pre-integrated with the cloud services needed to build your app. And with their new development kit, users can extend their app to ingest messages from bots, edge devices, databases, and more. It's free to download and gives you the tools you need to get your first app running in less than 30 minutes. To learn more about the dev kit and how to get started, visit aka.ms slash unchained or follow them on Twitter at msft blockchain. Issuing a digital security on the blockchain can be a significant undertaking, particularly to ensure compliance requirements are met. Tokensoft's trusted platform provides security in a world of uncertainty by working with top legal and financial experts so that your digital assets are secure. Tokensoft leads the market in providing technological tools to support tax, banking, and securities regulations for issuers of digital assets. We are honored to have supported leading companies in 2018. To learn more about issuing digital securities successfully, visit tokensoft.io or follow them on Twitter at Tokensoft Inc. Within months, cryptocurrency anti-money laundering regulations go global. Are you ready? Avoid stiff penalties or blacklisting by deploying effective anti-money laundering tools for exchanges and crypto businesses, the same tools used by regulators. CypherTrace is securing the crypto economy. Face it, regulations can stall or kill a fast-moving crypto business. 
New Financial Action Task Force and European Union Cryptocurrency AML laws are coming soon. You could be hit with stiff fines or blacklisted, no matter where your servers are in the world. Prepare now. Deploy the same powerful CypherTrace tools used by regulators. Protect your assets, streamline your compliance programs, and keep your exchange or crypto business out of the regulator's crosshairs. Learn how effective anti-money laundering tools help keep your crypto business safe and trusted. Learn more at cyphertrace.com slash unchained. Cyphertrace is securing the crypto economy. Back to my conversation with Rune Christensen of MakerDAO. When do you expect to launch multi-collateral DAI and with which assets? So we've basically, um, like you can say, learned the lesson that we're not, we don't make any estimations on when it's actually going to be done because <laughs> like we're really, like at this stage, right, we are so, like it's so close, right? I mean, the code is already, we've, we actually released the code almost half a year ago at this point. And uh, we've formally verified almost the entire code base and there's only these very small pieces left that needs to be engineered and most of it is just in testing at this point um, and of course there's going to be a very rigorous testing process um, but ultimately yeah it's like it's it basically is really close and it is also really close to the point where we actually you know we can actually we don't have to make an estimate of when it's going to launch we can actually commit to you know a hard launch date uh, once that's once we reach that point then we'll we'll announce it everywhere uh, but until then, basically, all we can say is it's very close. And also very soon, there'll be, you know, we'll actually give the community some very deep insight into, you know, the whole, like, sort of the project management of of, of the the launch cycle, right? And like the uh, the milestones and, and basically, you know, the entire scope of what's li- what's still left to do. And have you decided on at least what your next asset is that you'll use as collateral? Yeah, so that's the other really interesting thing that's happening in parallel, right? Is the the um, the preparation for for actually launching with a with some new collateral types, and so right now we still haven't we haven't published anything, but basically the 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 goal is that um at, like we just we'll just launch with whatever is available at launch, right? So the goal is that um so right now we're looking at basically most of the top like the top ERC twenty tokens. And also the top stable coins on it, like ERC twenty stable coins, and um, at some point, the foundation risk team, and actually it will be relatively soon, will then uh, come like release, like first release a set of models, and then also kind of like um, propose some some uh, some potential data sources that these models can then be applied to, in order to. Uh, you know, in order to synthesize the risk parameters for these different collateral types that we can available at launch. Um, but in general, like our approach is that, you know, it's not really a question of what is going to be collateral. It's most, it's, it's a question of what are the risk parameters going to be? Because from a technical standpoint, the system can really support like anything as collateral, right? Like sometimes if you have a weird token, it needs to be, to be like, there needs to be built what we call an adapter to make it you know, actually fit into the system. Um, but unless a token is literally a scam or just like a, like an, a horror, like a, a terrible project with no redeeming qualities, it's actually always going to be included as collateral eventually. Um, because it, it's only a, a question of technical bandwidth, but from the sort of from the risk assessment or like the governance point of view, 
the risk you know the risk process and and the risk models are always able to just take into account whatever risk is inherent in that asset so it's, so it's really it's actually possible to be very diverse right and be very inclusive of of all the different tokens on ethereum in the long run okay so this is something that i think i had a misconception about so you're going to once you get the the models then it sounds like you're just going to allow people to use many, many different assets as collateral and you're not going to add them individually? Because I, I oh, thought, no. you know, you would sort of suss out the risk for like maybe five or ten at the most, but it sounds like you're just going to allow people to, to use whatever for collateral at a certain point? Yeah, well, I mean, so in practice, it is going to be the way uh, you're talking. I mean, so in practice, they do have to be added individually and there is oh, okay. like some level of, of, you know, like technical overhead to adding a new collateral type, especially in the beginning as we're, you know, still kind of getting started and, and getting the processes up and running. So initially it will be like, it will be based on what are the most, like again, right? What are the top ERC20 tokens on Ethereum and what are the top stable coins that we can sort of, you know, we can uh, get ready for launch. Um, but when you do launch, do you expect that you'll launch with like 10 assets that people could use or do you expect it'll only be like two or how many at launch do you expect to have available? Yeah. I hope it's going to be closer to 10 than two and maybe even more than that. I mean, that's definitely, that would definitely be ideal, I think. And also very okay. much possible. All right. All right. So it sounds like it's undecided. So TBD check back here. Um, I'm sure I will have updates when that happens. So something that's really, really, really interesting that I was totally fascinated by was, so if we think of liquidations on these CDPs as similar to kind of like defaults on loans, Digital Asset Research had this pretty interesting report that showed that across a lot of months, defaults were at about 1% to 2%, but then there were a few months when they reached as high as well, in one month, although the system was really small at this point, it was 28%. And the report actually only went up to September. And I know that there were a large number of defaults uh, in November and December. So, um, of course, you know, making all these caveats about how the system is still small and it's still kind of early. Do you feel like you have any conclusions you can draw about how people behave when they have this much responsibility over their own lo loan versus, you know, if they had taken the loan out in a more traditional way? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been incredibly fascinated by being able to see how, like, how people interacted with the system in this first year. And I mean, especially considering the, the crazy circumstances of just like this persistent Ethereum crash, right? It just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and I think the main, the main interesting takeaway that we've observed is, just, yeah, it's just like this, how, how good people have been at adding more collateral to the positions and in general, how people seem to have preferred adding more collateral rather than deleveraging, which I actually think is a little bit counterintuitive, but it's, just, but, but I mean, that's apparently just a preference, right? Of, of users. And then like, there have been those situations where a lot of people have been liquidated at once. And typically those have always been times where there's been kind of like a sustained, you know, there's been a sustained crash. It's kind of been, crashing and crashing and crashing and crashing. And then at the end of like a long sustained period, then suddenly there's like a really steep crash. Uh, that seems to ca like catch a lot of people off guard because I guess many people, they expect after there's been like a long period of crashing, then it'll, it'll turn around, right? And then if, 
and then they're actually willing to go to a pretty risky uh, point in their CDPs there, and then can be caught off guard if there then is suddenly a steep crash. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit more about what you mentioned about how, and, and this is partially why I was so impressed when I was researching this, DAI has basically maintained its value at around $1. During this time when the price of Ether at its high was 1400 and then also hit a low below 800 or sorry below 100 so how did the system keep that peg yeah it's 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 quite amazing and actually the answer is pretty simple is that the system ended up absorbing almost 2% of the entire ethereum supply so basically as the price of ethereum crashed more and more of the entire ethereum ecosystem like entered the system basically to make sure that despite the price of Ethereum crashing, the, the supply of DAI actually kept growing the whole time because there was just a flood of Ethereum tokens entering the system. So even though from the beginning, the, the value of Ethereum had you know, fallen 10 times or even more, there were, you know, there were 100 times as much Ethereum in the system at that point. So even a 10x fall in price didn't matter because there was just so much Ethereum put into the system. Let's switch to regulatory issues. I noticed that Coinbase has listed DAI and it's also listed MKR, but MKR is actually only listed in jurisdictions outside the US, which is, I'm assuming, for regulatory reasons. So how do the collateralized debt positions and maker comply with CFTC regulation of derivatives and margin trading? Yeah, so I mean, so so the question of, of regulation in crypto is actually, you know, it's a lot more complex than you would think because the fact is there just isn't really legal clarity at all on, on these things right and in fact even when you know the cftc and the sec they go out and they make statements they are actually very careful to not really say something that's you know they don't really try to they don't really make very like precise statements and this is typically also the case for most other regulators around the world except like there's a few notable exceptions such as japan and singapore that have actually been very you know, been like, here are the guidelines. This is exactly how it works. Uh, you know, go ahead and, and innovate basically within this framework. Um, but in most countries, the approach at this stage is still kind of wait and see because on one hand, you know, they don't want to stifle innovation. They don't want to be like, you can't do this. And then suddenly a bunch of startups move to another country, right? But on the other hand, they're also still a little bit scared. You know, they're still like, it's, it's still a bit unknown. They're not really sure what actually needs to be done. Um, so right now, I mean, some, something like CDPs just is like, it, it is, it is way too kind of like, there are multiple issues that are kind of like much closer on, on the horizon that for, for the regulators to deal with globally. But in general, I mean, we basically, we've done a lot of research, right? And we are, we retain basically all the top lawyers and both in the US, but also all across the world, right? Because of course, there's a ton of work that goes into dealing with the, the legal and regulatory and even political challenges of, uh, of trying to build a decentralized financial infrastructure. And um, I mean, so in, in general, uh, it seems like because you have, like, as long as you have something that is fully decentralized, um, that really, you know, that in a lot of jurisdictions, including the US, that seems to be one of the big sort of factors that decides whether a regulator feels like they're compelled to step in to protect people. Because, you know, in, in traditionally, what rate, like the spirit of the law and really what regulators are all about is kind of like 
you know, protecting honest people and maybe slightly naive people from, you know, smart and dishonest people, right? So, so like, uh, you know, confidence schemes or whatever, like scams or pump and dumps and that kind of stuff, right? Where it's, there's a guy who's, who's saying, do, you know, buy this because I'm totally going to make you rich. And then after you buy it, he's like, uh, not going to make you rich after all, right? You can't do that because when you told them they should buy it and they were going to make you rich or whatever, right? Like, the, you know, that actually created in, 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 in like effectively a legal claim in a sense, right? And that's kind of, so that's the basis of, of the, the whole thing about ICO as being securities, right? That if you sell a token and you go out and say, buy this token, it's going to make you rich you actually suddenly fall under a, like a part of the law. and Right, but in um, this case where it's more about derivatives, that involves the CFTC, not the SEC. Yeah, and then, like, then the question really is, like, in a legal sense, in the, you know, under the, the, you know, the common law precedence of the U.S., is, like, does a CDP fall into the bucket of being a derivative? So the, so, and the thing, like... The thing that's really critical to 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 think about in this context is like it's very it's very much about the transaction. So it's not so like the the concept of like a smart contract, so like a piece of code on the blockchain that holds some money and holds some you know um, holds some assets and and has like a, some debt. That you that doesn't really like that that fundamentally doesn't really make sense in a in a regulatory sense because there's no such thing in like the real world, right? Because the way derivatives work in the real world is it is, you know, it's kind of like you, it's a transaction where you basically, you know, you, you sign a contract that says like, I'm going to do, you know, I'm going to, or rather like we're going to post some collateral. And then at some point uh, we'll, 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 we'll sort of uh, share it according to what we put in this contract. And then when you, you know, when you enter into that legal relationship, that is when, you again, like you get into that situation where are, you know, are you actually like, you know, you can't like with derivatives, for instance, right. You don't want to just have ra like random people do that kind of stuff because you don't know what are the, like, what are the full implications of what you're actually doing there. Right. And um, again, it's just a smart contract just isn't the same thing. Right. I mean, there's no, you're not actually doing any sort of, any sort of legal transaction. You're not even dealing with a counterparty at all. Right. You're actually like dealing with yourself in a way. Right. You're like, sort of making a deal with your your own assets and ultimately it is just an ongoing like i said right there's no clarity on this yet and we're in touch with yeah. uh, like most of the regulators and like what i think could happen right is that i think there are some places that are going to just say for instance a cdp is i mean it could be a cdp is a derivative it could be cdp is a loan it's a whatever it could be all sorts of stuff right um, but the important thing is it still wouldn't like it wouldn't impact maker itself. It would impact those that, you know, create like those that actually enable those transactions. Right. So it would be a question of what kind of front ends, you know, what, what does a front end into the system look like? So it could, for instance, mean that 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 uh, some front ends would block. Like, let's say if 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 the U.S., for instance, uh, decided it falls under some sort of regulation, right? Then you would see kind of like you're seeing with a lot of decentralized exchanges, the U.S. would get blocked from from non like from interfaces that just give direct access to the you know just exposed directly to the underlying system, and then you'd only have these more fully compliant interfaces that 
maybe uh, even had a license or something uh, that would actually uh, enable users to use the system. And then at the same time, of course, you would have like proper sophisticated investors, right? And institutions and so on be able to completely freely use the system, right? Because this kind of regulation really only applies to to like end consumers and their access to financial services. Yeah, so I'm not, I, I think you're right that it's not entirely clear what the regulation is, but I did see that the SEC has a document and it appears to, I guess, be put out by some lab at the CFTC, but it talks about, it's, it says, you know, here are examples of prohibited activities. And it says derivatives contracts, including those that are smart contracts deployed on a decentralized blockchain must not be traded or, and, and there's like a list of them, but the one bullet point that stuck out at me must not be traded or executed by individuals or firms that are required to be registered with the CFTC, but are not, meaning are not registered and also do not have an exemption or exception from registration. So yeah, it's not clear. You're right that in a way they're using the system to take out a loan from themselves, but presumably you're right. These people would not be registered or would it, would it be interpreted as, you know, they are using the maker system to do it and the maker foundation or whatever entity is not registered with the CFTC. It's not clear. So I guess we will someday find out. <laughs> you probably before me. So tell me how people have been using DAI. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a really sort of broad, like it, it, it's it's very interesting because actually adoption of DAI so far is not really that that great, right? Compared to if you look at something like USDC, which is a much newer stablecoin, um, but it actually already now has a much bigger supply. But, and and I think it's because what we're seeing with like the way that DAI really is positioned is kind of as, uh, you know, it's it's more like a platform. It's more like a tool for others to build something on top of um, rather than being, um, you know, like a product in of itself. So um, like basically what we're seeing is very like, there's really, it's really that has really been used in a lot of different ways, um, but still at relatively small scale. And at the same time, there are a ton of different projects that are building on top of it. Right. So there's a lot of different projects out there that are, right now in the process of building some sort of system that uses DAI as this decentralized uh, store value. Um, and I think if I should, like, probably the best example to mention of, of, of like, a, a series, like, kind of, like, a, a very useful and very uh, interesting use case is that there are a lot of startups around the world that use DAI for the payroll to international employees, right? Because actually doing payroll as a startup is... Very difficult, actually. And uh, it's been done, like it was done a lot with Bitcoin in the past. And now it seems like a lot of, of the companies that have been doing that, they're, they've actually started to use DAI for it because this allows them to even avoid the volatility of, of doing it, right? But still getting that incredible convenience of being able to just pay salary directly to this, you know, regardless of where the person is. And then in addition to that, there's also just a lot of, of trading on decentralized exchanges, right? In fact... I think pretty much all the, the volume on the decentralized exchanges on Ethereum is mostly with DAI. Oh, meaning that's used as the for pair, for trading pairs. Yeah. So do you like you know if people, for instance, want to trade, you know, if they just want to speculate on the price of Ethereum, 
with uh, the zero x protocol you know they'll like you know then they might go on radar relay and trade die against eth right so they'll go into die when they want to hedge their exposure and then they'll take the die and they'll purchase eth with it when they want to speculate in the price and and that actually generates a lot of well some demand for, for die right because there is a whole ecosystem or like a whole economy around trading eth against against die across these various decentralized exchanges yeah, I was looking at the Maker Tools website, which is amazing for people who haven't seen that. I'll link to it in the show notes. But one thing that stuck out at me is that DAI has a pretty high velocity, which I think indicates that it is being used as a medium of exchange. Sometimes it's as high as three to six, which I tried to find this out for Bitcoin and I did find a, a chart and it showed that at least, especially more recently, Bitcoin trades or sorry, Bitcoin's velocity is in the one to two range or even sometimes below one. So, um, so I think you're right that it is, I mean, I guess as a stable coin, it, it's probably makes sense. So something else I want to ask about was, you know, you kind of described how everyday people are using it, but I know that MakerDAO has also entered into some business partnerships, such as with Wire, which is a blockchain money transfer company. Can you describe some of those different business partnerships and how DAI can be used by businesses? Yeah, so I think one of the things that really sets like the Maker project apart from many other crypto spaces, how we've managed to really like penetrate um, both into the the real world in, in some cases, right? But then also just like create this momentum of many different uh, crypto projects that kind of get tied together by all adopting DAI or adopting CDPs and integrating with Maker in some way. And I mean, it's really a lot. And I I think, we you know, we have partnerships with, with almost all kind of like the, the major uh, decentralized crypto projects, at least on particular, on, on Ethereum in particular. But um, yeah, so Wire is, is, is a really good example of something I think is really, like it's a really, it really makes sense. I mean, it's really useful both in the, in the sense that it's very good for the maker ecosystem to get access to this kind of service because not only is Wire an on-ramp, right? So not only is Wire a point that's going to interface between uh, money in the bank and sort of the fiat world and then the crypto world through DAI. But also, DAI actually provides a lot of utility to Wire because Wire is also, you know, Wire also powers remittance services, right? Like some money transfer. And DAI is really used, like, that's one of sort of the, the top use cases of DAI is to use it as a liquidity backbone for remittance. Um, so there, so actually, Wire is just one of many that, uh, that are doing that uh, using DAI. And, it, and again, like I was saying, like uh, most of, of the partners and most of the, the projects that are integrating DAI, they're still working on it like a lot of it is still not live yet another really cool example is our major partnership with TradeShift. so TradeShift is one of the biggest supply chain platforms in the world uh, they actually have uh, more than a million companies on their platform uh, that use TradeShift kind of as their like almost like facebook for business or something so it's like a, a software like it's an it's an internet platform that the companies use to kind of like maintain all their relationships with each other and especially small businesses, it's really important for them to have access to this kind of system so they don't have to do so much paperwork. Um, but the other, the other problem that small businesses have is that, um, you know, when, if you're a small business and uh, you sell some, you know, some product to a, to a big buyer that, that buys, let's say a million dollars of, of products from you, 
the way it works in the international, like in international trade is they'll buy those goods from you and you'll send them to them, but they're not going to pay you until like three months later or sometimes six months or in some places like in, in, in Asia, it's even like they'll pay you whenever they want to, uh, which is kind of crazy, right? So th- that's really like, uh, just like an example of how the global economy is very, like, it's kind of like built to disadvantage the little guy in many cases, right? Like the, like you'll see big companies kind of like squeezing out these kind of terms out of small businesses because they just have no other choice. They just have to do it. And so when you, when you're in this kind of situation where you've sold your product, but you're not going to get paid until several months later, what you can do is you can get what's called trade finance. So you can actually access financing that sort of gives you a, a bridge loan, basically like you can get some, some credit during this period where, uh, you still haven't get paid, but you still want to do more business, right? You want to buy more materials so you can build more stuff and you can sell it to even more buyers. And so with TradeShift, what we're doing is we're building, we're actually using blockchain technology to build a new kind of marketplace for this kind of service where we'll actually be able to really put the small business at the center and, and create something that is, you know, really, um, really has the efficiency and also like transparency and just like the, the really like build with the right values to create something that just improves, you know, the conditions for small businesses. Um, and it's all based around the fact that you can actually tokenize, you know, you can tokenize an invoice, right? You can take an index. So you can have a small business that is going to get paid, you know, a million dollars from its big buyer three months from now. You can actually turn that sort of future million dollars into a token. And then you can have people buy that token at a discount. So the company gets paid up front, but it gets paid slightly less. But, but then the good news is they get the money straight up, right? And um, so what we're doing with TradeShift is we're implementing this kind of tokenized system using DAI as a settlement currency. So you can, you can buy these tokenized invoices with DAI. And then when they sort of mature and, and the big buyer pays out, um, you'll get paid out in DAI. And uh, that just makes it very convenient to access and also means that we can actually open up this market, like the market for, for, for trade finance to the entire, you know, the entire financial world and the entire blockchain economy. Yeah, there are whole companies now in the fintech space that do this. And it is a huge business. Uh, but you're right that it depends. Some of the companies do take kind of a big cut, like they they really are pretty um, aggressive with the discounts. But you're right that I think this could potentially be even more liquid than it is now uh, if it were in a blockchain-based cryptocurrency. So so we'll see what happens there. Um, but it is already kind of a big business and there's a lot of fintech companies that are already working in that space. I also wanted you to walk through examples, which you sort of mentioned briefly, that DAI is being used in the decentralized finance system and listeners will know at least some parts of that system because I've interviewed Dharma, DYDX, Compound, Zero-X, uh, like, like just a bunch of these decentralized finance protocols. So what are some examples of how DAI is being used in that system? Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I think the ones you mentioned are, some, are probably some of the best examples of that. Right? I think Compound is maybe the first one that uh, blew up a bit where people, because, so what compound does is actually kind of like a more generalized version, or, or maybe also you could say a more simple version of, of the multi-collateral die system, actually. 
where there just isn't like there isn't a, a native stablecoin, but rather there is kind of people who can who can deposit assets into the the platform and kind of like lend out those assets, and then others can come and deposit other types of collateral to then borrow those assets. And uh, they actually held a poll where they asked like what stablecoin should we add, and the most people then voted to add Dai. So they added Dai as a, as a stablecoin on the platform, and it meant that you were now able to if you had like if you either had bought die or even if you're using a cdp in the in single collateral die you were able to to lend out that die on on the compound platform and people would then use assets like uh, augur rep uh, i think actually primarily was the the main asset that was that was used to then take out sort of a like compound cdps basically and borrow that that die that people are lending out and the, the interest rates, they were really high. So at first it was really popular. Like you could get something like 10% per year or something for, for depositing your die into it. So um, that saw a lot of activity. And it's, it's an interesting example of, of how, you know, it, it, you know, like how you have two projects, two platforms that actually synergize, right? Because in a completely permissionless manner, right? Because basically what that meant was that the multi-collateral functionality was now built on top of Maker already, right? Because now you could actually hmm. go and you could, Put in rep, and you could borrow die, just like you'll be able to do in multi-collateral die. And uh, yeah, and zero x is another great example, right? And and of course, it's uh, well, I mean, it's clear, obviously that's the that's the first big example, right? Because it's a it's a pretty old project. It's been alive for a long time, and um, I'm actually not sure which zero x relayer is the biggest nowadays, but but at least radar relay is I think is one of the oldest, and I think it's actually the only. I don't know what you call them, but kind of like it's the only kind of like uh, pure zero X layer that like f- that does the zero X protocol kind of like the the OG way that it was meant to be done, where they directly expose the orders in the blockchain. And since the beginning, they've they've primarily been about trading uh, ETH against Dai, and 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 I think it's really cool, right? Because that's meant that people have actually been able to like like blockchain users have been able to go to this platform and uh and speculate on the price of ethereum just like they would do on on any centralized exchange uh but just without having that centralized exposure right so you can do it without any risk of getting goxed wow yeah this this whole thing is just so fascinating uh, the more that i learn about the whole thing and you've been such a trooper for powering through this super long interview, but as listeners can tell, there is just so much to unpack. But I do want to circle back to something that was mentioned at the beginning of the first episode that we did on MakerDAO, which is you talked before about how you felt like there was a cultural shift with MakerDAO. And something I had been thinking when I was learning about this whole system, you know, about how people have to put up their own collateral. The management of the smart contract is their own responsibility. They have to manage this risk that their position could be liquidated, et cetera. So I used to cover personal finance and I know that a lot of people don't even understand the basics of budgeting and saving, let alone something maybe this complex. I, I like, I used to be one of those people. There's no judgment there. I, for a long time really was terrible with my money. So how, much education do you feel like you've needed to give people for for them to use maker correctly and do you feel like that's some kind of barrier or hurdle to adoption uh i mean that's an interesting like subject right because i think actually that and this in fact 
sort of ties into the whole question about regulation as well, right? I mean, the thing is, in the end, like the, the view we've had in Maker for a long time was actually that we didn't really want to go out and get random people in because because you really got to know what you're doing when you start playing with something like a governance token like MKR that can be inflated to infinity. Or similarly, if you, you, know, if you start opening a CDP that can be liquidated and give you a 13% penalty, right? So um, we have, like, we do a lot of, of education and it's, and it's basically, it's, it's really focused on taking people that already are sort of pretty smart and have been able to learn a lot on their own and then really getting them into the core of the community and get them in and kind of try to, to um, get them prepared to actually participate in, in the governance and the risk management of the system. Um, but ultimately, you know, we haven't, you know, we're not really like our goal has not been to, to, you know, have the, take this, take this beta and then go out and kind of like push it out to the regular people or kind of like push it out to the mainstream. I mean, it, we, we build it really still as a, as a technical demonstration of, of what we were able to do. Right. And for, for really, like I would say regular people currently, I think only really die, the die functionality is what's available to them. Right. I mean, cause pretty much anyone would be able to actually obtain DAI in their wallet by, you know, by like, I mean, actually it's not even easy to, actually not even that easy to buy DAI currently, but well, okay, I guess you can buy it on Coinbase nowadays, but I mean, you could at least receive it in your wallet from your friend, right? Like anyone can do that. Um, and, and that, I think that's really good, right? Because I mean, DAI, that's kind of the thing that, I mean, if you don't know what you're doing and you're going to play around with crypto, you should play around with a stable coin, right? Don't play around with something crazy volatile. I mean, so I actually think that's, that, that works pretty well, right? That CDPs are quite difficult to use. And then MKR is incredibly difficult to understand and, and, uh, and difficult to even obtain. And in the future, all of this stuff will be made, you know, will really be made very easily available to everyone. But, but it has to be done in a way that's safe, right? It, and... Uh, in many cases, that will be in in collaboration with, um, you know, with like, re, you know, with regulators or institutions and, and basically uh, like, you know, systems that exist to protect people who don't know everything about finance or whatever from themselves, right? From and and uh, and or from like crooked salesmen that pitch them a little bit too much on, on the advantages of and whatever, I don't know, convince some innocent guy to open a crazy CDP or something like, and I think also actually tying back to what really, what the regulators again, really look for, right. Is, and again, because there's this, like in this, especially in this current element of, of, uh, there's still not being any clarity and still not really being any, uh, clear, clear guidelines, right. It, you know, there is this concept in, in, in securities law, that's the called the manner of sale, right? Like, so it's like, it's not just what you're, yourself like it's not just what transaction happened but it's like what kind of of marketing and communication happened before right and there's a very big difference between someone you know learning just someone being able to understand finance and learning that they have access to let's say go and use cdps right and they can actually use that to take a very favorable loan for themselves and then versus someone going out and being like, you know, creating some Google ads and being like, Hey, buy my coin or something, you know, or like, uh, use my interface and, and gamble with some CDPs or something. Right. That's a huge difference between that. And, and definitely what, like the one where you're sort of aggressively going out and getting people who maybe not ex know exactly what they're doing to, to get into some complicated financial contract. That's when, you know, like it, it's that kind of like 
you know, I would call like aggression, right. That I think is going to be what, um, like where the, the, the question of, of the regulation would really apply. Right. Because it really becomes a, like it becomes a question of, of, of protecting people who may not be able to protect themselves. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that at least we've seen so far with the enforcement actions that if they detect that there was some kind of exploitation, I guess, that was going on in the way that the promoters were trying to get people into the system, then that definitely plays a role, which is why we saw some of these um, enforcements against celebrities and stuff like that. Um, but we will, you know, as we've discussed on this episode, there's, uh, there are a lot of question marks that remain about regulation of this kind of thing. However, at least in this short period, I think, I think this is a, an incredible, I, I see people always commenting on Twitter and other places that I say interesting a lot, but I really do think that this is an interesting project. And that's why um, I use the word interesting, because when I say that, I actually mean that. But one other thing that I noticed is before we recorded, Placeholder VC noted that it took that maker issued to about 200 million in loans in the first year. And that for perspective, they said that Lending Club took five years to originate $250 million in loans, although they did concede that wasn't it's not totally apples to apples. So um, certainly there is a certain amount of traction that you're getting in um yeah, I guess we'll see how it plays out. Well, it's been so great having you on the show. Thank you so much for enduring the crazy sound check from the first episode and also for coming back on the show. Where can people learn more about you and MakerDAO? So the best place to start is on our website, MakerDAO.com, where you can find a lot of good resources. You can find the white paper, the, the team page, um, and just uh, like access to all the, the information about the whole system. Uh, and then if you want to join the community and really be a part of, of the discussion, you the first place to go is to our subreddit, which is on reddit.com slash r slash MakerDAO. Or you can even join our community chat room, which is open for everyone to come and join on chat.makerdao.com or, or which you can just find on, on the website. Thanks so much for coming on Unchained. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I mean, anytime, you know. <laughs> Maybe next time we have an update, I'll come back and uh, we can talk for like three hours more. <laughs> yeah, and let's hope that this sound check goes more smoothly that time. <laughs> no, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting like a professional setup, and I'm gonna have it like on Monday or something because I'm never gonna. This is not something I ever want to go like. Like my freaking headset just stopped working. What the hell, you know? That's ridiculous. We paid our dues. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Rune and MakerDAO, check out the show notes inside your podcast player. New episodes of Unchained come out every Tuesday. If you haven't already, rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. If you liked this episode, share it with your friends on Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And if you're not yet subscribed to my other podcast, Unconfirmed, I highly recommend you check it out and subscribe now. Also, be sure to go to unchainedpodcast.com and sign up for my weekly newsletter. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Raylan Gallipoli, Fractal Recording, Corin Fife, Jenny Josephson, and Daniel Ness. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.